Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Amen. And I'm going to invite you to stay standing. We're in a season, if you're new to church, called Lent. It's the season that precedes Easter. It's like the build-up to Easter and our celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And during that time, we do things in the service a little bit differently. No happy, go say hi to everybody time. Uh, And instead, we listen to what Scripture has for us. And sometimes that is painful. And so if what you hear today hurts your ears, then, well, I didn't write it, so I don't apologize. Um, So whatever we hear, the response we get to make is, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And sometimes that will sound odd based on what we've just heard. Jeremiah chapter 18, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. For the pot he was shaping from clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. If at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had planned for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Chapter 19, this is what the Lord says, go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go to the valley of Ben-Hinnon, near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, you people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I'm going to bring disaster on this place that will make everyone who hears it make their ears tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this place a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that that neither they nor their ancestors, ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled the place with innocent blood. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnon, but the Valley of Slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. 
All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. Then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. And with some bafflement we say, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. And I'm gonna do what I can with that passage. Um, God, as we look at this and try and draw from it what you might be saying to us, uh, please speak to us. Help us, because we clearly desperately need your help. Amen. So if you're new to this series, new to the last couple of weeks, we're in a series in a book called Jeremiah. He's a prophet, uh, writing somewhere around 600 BC, maybe a little bit later. Um, And this is Rembrandt Van Rijn's beautiful picture of him, just kind of contemplating the disaster that is on the city. As, As normal, if you have questions, we would love to hear them. And so you can text 720-316-3893. That number has no spiritual significance. So if you're someone who will sit there and think, why did they pick that number? No reason. It was just the first number that was available, but we would love to hear questions and we'll do whatever we can to help you answer them. They may not be good answers, but they'll at least be somewhat amusing or something. Um, So the season Lent is this time where we begin our journey to Easter. In these couple of weeks, we're now in week five of Lent, we actually begin to turn the corner to actually starting to contemplate some of the passion of Jesus. We actually start to talk somewhat about the cross, the crucifixion. We we begin to make that movement in a way that maybe we didn't for the first few weeks. The writer, Alicia Brick-Cole, says this, Lent is a much-needed mentor in an age obsessed with visible, measurable, manageable, and tweetable increase. For it invites us to walk with Jesus and his disciples through darker seasons that we would rather avoid. Grief, conflict, misunderstanding, betrayal, restriction, rejection, and pain. Then Easter leads us in celebration of salvation at the stunningly satisfying fruit of Jesus, sacred decrease. If you, like me, are someone who doesn't like to think about bad things, like to pretend they're not happening when they do happen, then Lent is a season that you desperately need. If you're someone who loves to sit in those things, well, then Lent is your favorite season of the year, and this is like, this is your territory. But it is something that is needed, something that is important for us. We've kind of contemplated this question for a few weeks now. When I wake up on Resurrection Sunday, the highest day of the Christian year, how will I be different? What am I preparing for? To a degree, when Easter comes around, you get out of Easter what you put into this season Lent, this season of contemplation. It's not just a season where you don't eat chocolate and you only eat fish or something like that. It's a season where we're preparing for this great day. So when you hear Lent, think fast, lament, 
and repent, three words that aren't awfully popular in the 21st century. And and what I promised you was that this week I was gonna talk about something I'm actually good at, because two weeks ago we talked about generosity, and I'm pretty terrible at generosity. And and then last week we talked about lament, this sense of grief and sense of sorrow, and I'm, I'm pretty terrible at that too. I'm brilliant at avoiding lament particularly. And so now we come to repentance, and I thought, I was good at that, but as I spent this week processing, I'm, I'm actually starting to wonder if I am or, or was as good as I thought I was at this thing. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Any recovering Pentecostals out there? Yeah, there's a few, I like it, good for you. Any recovering Baptists out there? Recovering Catholics out there? Recover- we're all recovering from something. We're, we're recovering together. It's a wonderful thing. So, so the Pentecostal church, it, it taught me a lot and I value the upbringing, but it also taught me uh, about guilt. And I felt guilt pretty much all the time. I felt shame pretty much all the time. I carried these things around as part of my faith. It was almost how I felt like I was responding to God. I I felt guilty and we would do these times, and if you're visiting, don't worry, we don't do this here, but we would ask everyone who who needed to repent to come out to the front of the church to do it publicly. And I was there pretty much every single week. There was this moment where the pastor of the church actually looked at me and said, you don't need to be here. You need to go sit down. Just, just, I don't want you repenting in my church anymore. And so I carried that around for a long time, this sense that there was something to repent of, something to turn away from, something to be sorry for, but no concrete thing that I could put my finger on. So if repentance means this, if it means admitting guilt, yes, I was great at that. If it means sorrow, like in Old Testament terms, the sackcloth and ashes thing, yeah, I was great at that. But, but as I played around with the text today, I wonder if there's not another aspect to repentance. And I don't think I'm good at this third thing. But before we get there, hold that like a string that we're going to get them all together in the end. Just keep it floating around in the back of your mind. Jeremiah chapter 1 says this, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The words I formed in the original Hebrew language is this word, yotzer, the process of forming something. It's the same word that's used in Genesis. In this first, this beginnings book of the Bible where it says God took Adam and formed him, yotzer, from the dust or the dirt of the ground. God says, Jeremiah, I made you. I am the creator that created you. I'm the maker that made you. I am the one that gave you the giftings that you have and gave you the calling that you have. And, and now you must go. And, and don't say I'm too young. Jeremiah's maybe 18 years old. Do not, despite the picture. I know there's a dis, like an incongruity with the picture. He looks old, maybe at this point 18 years old. Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say, whatever I command you to. And so Jeremiah does, and and in chapter 15 we read, I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and and you had filled me with indignation. And my cynical side says, wait, was it just because no one wanted you there? Like, (laughs) is Jeremiah the sort of person you invite to a party? He doesn't seem that way, but he is this person that has stood alone and stood outside the group of people that are doing all of the things that God says, judgment is coming for these things. In chapter 20, we read, when the priest, Pasher, son of Immer, 
the, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord heard Jeremiah prophesying all the things that he'll say in the verses we're looking at today. He had him beaten and put in stocks in the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day when Pashur released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Pashur, but terror on every side. We just don't do insults like they did back then. That's such a great insult. You are terror at every side. For this is what the Lord says. I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends with your own eyes. You will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. Jeremiah says, God says to Jeremiah, I made you and I am made you specifically as you are for a specific reason. Form, how you are made, meets function. You are made this way for this reason. Now we get to the text we're on today, Jeremiah 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and, therefore I will give, and there I will give you my message. What's the word for potter? Yotzer. Same thing. The potter is the one who forms things. God is the one who forms things. It's the, the same idea. The, the, the maker and the made are intrinsically tied together. The word describes both the person that makes, in this case the potter, and the thing that is made. You can't separate one from the other. There is the thing that is made and there is the person that made it. They meet in the middle. Hold that as another string, we'll get back to that in just a second. One of the problems we have reading a text like this in the 21st century is that we live in a world where there's still art. You know when something's created, you know some of you are artists, some of you make things, you, you thrive in that world. But we live in a world where form and function are split apart. So let me help you understand this just a second. My uncle, oh my, sorry, my, my family, my great, 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 great grandfather, all these different people were really famous builders in the town that I grew up. So these are some of the things that they built. They built this, this is the council house in Birmingham. They built this, this is the art gallery. They built this, this is the inside of the Grand Hotel. And obviously it got to my generation, there's no discernible building ability whatsoever. And so there's a reason I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, if the family business existed, I wouldn't be welcome in it. But here, form meets function. Those are real pillars actually holding stuff up. They are part of the structure. They're not just things placed around iron girders or, or whatever the term is to look nice. Function, form, uniquely tied together in this world. Here is something modern that I'm proud to say my family didn't build. This is the library in Birmingham. It's this monstrous um, concrete building that was thrown up in the 70s. It was supposed to be marble clad, so it looked pretty. But they decided that, that form, how it looked, no longer mattered. They were just going to stick with function. In the ancient world, there was no just form and function. People didn't say, I've made a pot and we're gonna spend time talking about pottery, and now I'm gonna take this pot and I'm not gonna use it, I'm just gonna place it on this table for everybody to look at. I know it's upside down, and they wouldn't do it anyway, even if it was the right way up. That kind of thing just didn't happen. Pottery, things, objects, were made to be used and also to look good. 
And that was just the way the world worked. Things are different now. I once accidentally signed up for a college course that I thought was about Greek literature, which I love, and it was actually about Greek pottery, which I had no interest in. So I know more about Greek pottery than any person alive should know. So I know that this is specifically a Dinos type of pottery. It's for drinking wine from. It's also black figure pottery. It's also made by a particular artist called Sosiphus, and he was the first. Person to start to write on pottery the words here, Sosiphus made me. In the ancient world, there's a deep connection to the thing that was made and the person that made it. And even in a time before Sosiphus came along, people would look at art and look at an object that was both form and function and say, I know who made that because his style is on it. He has a particular way of doing things. My great-great-great-grandparents had that in the way that they created. They had a style and people knew it. Nobody wants to own the style of the library in Birmingham because it's awful, it's ugly. We live in a world now where those things have started to split apart, but in the ancient world, that's how things worked. There was form and function and they were tied together. There was a maker and the maid and they were tied together. So bear that in mind, like another strand that you're just going to hold on to as we continue to process this. Jeremiah 18 verse 4, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. He wouldn't throw it away. He'd have this piece of clay he would pull out of a miry pit of clay. Sound familiar language to anybody? And he would place it on a stone and he would begin to shape something beautiful from it. And, and sometimes the pot would get in it grains of sand or bits of stone and it would start to become misshapen. And, and so he would say, I'm going to make something different. And that's how it would work. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I do what not do with you, Israel? As this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter. So you are in my hand, Israel. God says, I am a maker, Yatzer, you are the made, Yatzer, same thing, the maker and made tied to each other. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted and torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. It suggests that there isn't like a fatalistic view of history. It's not just all predetermined. It's not all just going to happen. But somewhere, human behavior, human way of living, they impact all of that. Loads of modern questions for us that lurk under the surface that we don't have time to pull the threads off. What does it mean for societies all over the world? right now. Jeremiah 18 verse 11, now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, I'm preparing a disaster for you, devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. That that term there is this Hebrew word shub, which literally means to turn. If you've raised kids, you have those moments where they're disobedient, those moments perhaps where they're in tears, where you can't get their attention. And what do you say to them? You say, look at me, turn towards me, give me your attention. That's the invite. It's it's an invite term. And Jeremiah uses it all the time in this passage. Turn this way, people. Pay attention to what I'm saying. There is an invitation to repentance. 
This word that we landed on earlier, repentance, broadly speaking, is always from God's perspective, invitation. It's a look over here, turn your head this way, turn back towards me even. But this is the reply, verse 13. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. The, the options are to turn or to continue. And, and the, the choice, it seems, is to continue, to, to say no to invitation. And so we jump to chapter 19. This is where it starts to get serious. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter and take along some of the elders of the town. Ooh. Go buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnon near the entrance of the potsherd gate. There proclaim the word I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and you people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. In this place, verse seven, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before the enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. And I will give their carcasses as food to the birds and the wild animals. I will devastate this city and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. They will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the siege so hard against them to destroy them. I will break the jar while those who go with you are watching. I will break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and the city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. It's an aggressive message. It's hard to hear, right? But there's a possibility that because of our wiring, because of when and where we live, that we miss the core of this piece of street art that Jeremiah brings to this people in Jerusalem because we feel no attachment to this other than the gardeners out there that were like, no, that could have gone in my garden. I would have made it beautiful. Something would have grown out of it. It would have been wonderful. Don't worry, it's an old pot. No, it's not an old pot, actually. It's new. Um, <laughs> it's, it's ruined now for good. We don't feel the attachment. Jeremiah feels no attachment to the pot that he has purchased. And the danger is that we come to assume that God feels no attachment to what is described as his Yotzer, his piece of art, his work that he has made. And that's just not how the passage reads. How many fans out there of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Anyone out there, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel fans? Few people. It's this brilliant show set in the 1950s in New York, and it's this young Jewish woman trying to become a comedian. In, in the course of her ad adventure, she meets this guy on the right, Rufus Sewell, who plays an artist called Declan Howell. A guy who's famous for not selling any of his artwork. He, he sold a couple of pieces, and when he does, he regrets it. He'll go and he'll break into houses and take them back. He refuses to let any of the art go. He's deeply attached to it. And then you come to hear the reason. He once painted something that was so beautiful 
that Jackson Pollock, the only person who had seen it, said, I may never paint again. He just can't bring himself to create anymore. And through some circumstances, Mrs. Mays or Midge ends up in his apartment in a secret room and gets to see this painting that nobody else has seen. And she looks at it and says, this is incredible. Why is it not in a museum? Why is it not in, in someone's house? And he says, what, next to the dead things? In a doctor's house so he can talk about how he has this painting? He says, I made this for me. I made this to go in my home when I had a home. I made this to be seen by my family when I had a family, and yet that's all lost. That's a future that doesn't exist anymore. Because everything that I had, I put into that painting. I put into that painting. If you create anything, you know that you put something of yourself in it. You start a business, and when it fails, something inside you dies too. You create a piece of artwork. When it's destroyed, something inside you is lost. You write a song, and you forget the words. You lose the melody, and somewhere inside you, you feel like something is lost. Creation is deeply tied to the thing that you created. The maker is, is deeply tied, intrinsically tied to the thing that it makes. These are some of the ladies I got to work with in Haiti. They are single mothers, often that have been through horrific situations and, and Papillon Marketplace gets to support about 700 of them. If you support one person in Haiti, you usually support another 10 people, so maybe 7,000 people supported in different ways. And this lady comes from a background that's full of sexual abuse, full of brokenness. She left her husband, or her husband died, or she ended up with this group of people now raising kids and now making pottery for people to buy. She made something like this. It was supposed to say, I believe. It was supposed to be made for Americans to put in their cupboards and drink coffee from in the morning. But she's not very good at English, so she mistranslated it. Instead, it says, I am believed. Something, if you're a victim of sexual abuse, is really important. Somewhere, this lady in Haiti made something that her personality, her character, everything she's experienced, it bled into this. You can't separate art from the person that made it. You can't separate the maker and the made in an overly simplistic way. And so when we read Jeremiah, what we have to appreciate is this. This process is deeply painful for multiple reasons. In Jeremiah chapter 18 through 20, judgment hangs in the balance. It will come at great cost to the maid and to the maker too. We can't understand that. We can't understand why societies acting in certain ways lead to judgment. We can't understand why there'll be a future for this nation that seems broken and horrific to us. All we can know is that they are made by the maker. And somewhere, any destruction, any loss is painful across the board. When we think about repentance... This is why invitation is so central to it. Yes, it's admitting guilt. Yes, it's sorrow. But from God's perspective, it is an invite in so that the preferred future can happen and this future doesn't happen. And it seems like God is so committed to this idea that even when he promises the certainty of judgment in other places, he predicts new possibilities. At the same time, Jeremiah is saying all this. In Babylon, a few hundred miles away, a guy called Ezekiel is saying this, the, the hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. 
He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Seems like even when all possibilities are dead, when there is no possible future, God does incredible things to to give new futures, to create new possibilities. It seems if God is a potter, he might be this kind of potter. This is kintsugi, this Japanese art form which takes broken pottery and laces it with gold. It repairs the unrepairable. It makes valuable that which has no value. And some of us are those things at different points in our life. So question as we kind of come to a conclusion, as we prepare for this table, uh, what is God's invitation to us? What is he saying, given that we're not a group of people living in 600 BC and we're not doing some of the things this group of people were doing and the judgment that's talked about may not affect us or certainly may not look like this? Well, first, the takeaway is this broad, general invitation as we start to move towards Easter, as we start to move towards the idea of crucifixion. Centered in that is this idea that something had to be broken. And the story of God in the universe is that Jesus chose brokenness for us. In Isaiah 53, it says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace on was, uh, was on him and on his, by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the, the crucifixion story is, is not one of no judgment, it's judgment differently placed. It's not one of no broken part, it's one of no a different person is broken. The, the maker, the potter himself, chooses that journey for his creations. In Luke 23, there's this very famous story of another person crucified with Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, don't you fear God? He said, since you were under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. We are broken justly. We are the part that should be broken. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you came into, come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Perhaps you've heard those stories of so-and-so arriving at the pearly gates. There's the rumor that St. Peter lurks there waiting for people, and there's a story written about this man as he approaches those same gates. He arrives in this heavenly paradise, and he, he arrives, and an angel comes in to check him in and says, tell us how you got here. Like, tell us what you believed, and, and then starts asking him a bunch of questions like, did you believe that God made the world in six days or did you believe that he kind of used evolution to do it? Did you believe in the doctrine, doctrine of, of, of atonement? Do you believe in all of these different things that Christians argue over and have for a couple of thousand years? And, and this man looks at the angel and simply says this, I'm here because the man on the middle cross told me I could come. I'm here because the man on the middle cross told me I can come. And I don't actually know anything more than that. It's invitation, right? It's not information of any kind. It's simply an invitation. That, that's the heartbeat of, of the gospel. It's invitation. The heartbeat of 
why we do church, it's, it's what Jesus does, he invites. It's what God does, he invites, hoping for turning, hoping for attention, hoping for a return. It's an invitation that declares that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today, that new stories do emerge out of old ones and often happen surprisingly without warning because this is not a man who is in a place to receive a new story. He's a convict sentenced to die and yet the still invite. They're still invite. But I wonder if there's something, perhaps for us that have said, well, I'm, I've been following Jesus for years, I'm part of this church thing, and, and I'm intrigued by this switch in the passages that the whole thing seems to hinge on. Chapter 18, verse 11 and 12, they will reply, it's no use, we will continue with our own plans, we will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. This is their response to the invitation. And I wonder, what does this response mean? There's a couple of words that intrigue me. Are they just a group of people that are like, hey, let's live and be merry because tomorrow we die. Some people are wild like that. Maybe that's you. I don't think it's me by nature. Some, some people are this. I found this anonymous quote. Most are inclined to recline to enjoy the decline. It's this moment. The plane's crashing. We're just going to sit back and we're just going to enjoy these last moments. We're going to ride this train until it crashes. And, and I don't think that's my worrying. And it's probably not most of your wirings. I don't think that's the heartbeat of the passage. I think it's these words. It's no use. The original word there is the word for despair. It's like, you made me this way. I can't change anything. I'm just a broken mess. I'm, I'm always the same. It's always the same story with me. I always end up in the same place, doing the same things with the same broken people. This is, this is the language behind that. It's like, who can change? I, I, I'm, just, I'm just, I am what I am. It's the Popeye language of like, yeah, I am what I am. There's no option here for me. The writer, Janet O. Hagberg, has an idea in her spiritual journey called the wall. Uh, she says there's this moment, like this moment where you hit this thing, kind of like in marathon. Does anyone run marathons here? Any marathon runners? The, they have this rumor of something called the wall. I think in America you call it bonking or something like that, but it's this moment your body shuts down because it has no energy, and I've never been crazy enough to run a marathon. I was gonna say stupid, but I changed it to crazy to run a marathon. The wall represents our will meeting God's will face to face. We decide anew whether to surrender and let God's will direct our lives. There's this moment of interaction that says, is it God's will or my will? Does it matter what he says? Does it matter what I say? Does it matter what he says about me? Does it matter what I say about me? There's this tension that comes into play there. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece, however you are made. You are something that he loves and has formed and that he was willing to take brokenness in order that you and I wouldn't be broken. So this is the possibility where we see rejection Endings, failure, brokenness, bitterness, loss of value, fatigue, spiritual boredom, this hitting the wall idea. God sees the possibility of invitation, new beginnings, restoration, wholeness, healing, true value, energy, spiritual rejuvenation. It seems like God is still someone who takes broken things and forms them anew in incredible ways. The poet Abhijani says this, then came the healing time, heart started to shine, soul felt so fine. Oh, oh, what a freeing time it was. God is still forming things anew. 
One final thought, one final kernel of a story to, to help us navigate this aspect of invitation. The, there's a chaplain in, in England that tells a story working in a hospital of how he would walk past people's rooms and he'd go in and chat to them and some of them were in terrible condition and some of them were about to pass away and there was one person, he'd walk past the door and this person, I get to do this here, I couldn't do it in England because it's kind of rude. He would, just, he would kind of stick two fingers up to him like this, which is the, the English equivalent of the bird. Like every time you walk past, he'd just be like. <laughs> Chaplin walk past, another one, there we go. And he'd do this repeatedly, just constantly. That was his message. I, I, I want nothing to do with you. And, and then one time he didn't. One, one time he, he just sat and looked. And the chaplain thought, this is as good as an invite as I'm going to get. So he walks in and begins to talk to the man. And, and he says, the, the man said to him, well, why do you wear that white collar around your neck? And he said, well, I'm, I'm someone who's trying to follow Jesus. And the man says, what does that mean? And he said, well, I, I believe that I'm a pretty broken human being and that Jesus became broken for me. And that's the goodness of the story. And the man kind of looks at him and says, huh, like, so... If I wanted to talk to God about that, what would it look like? And the chaplain, who happened to be wise and give good instructions, simply said, well, you've got a chair there. Just imagine Jesus is sat in the chair next to you. And then my question would be, what, what would you want to say to him? And he said, I'd probably tell him I'm pretty scared. Um, I've probably not got long to live. Um, and I'm not sure what that means. And the chaplain said, okay, anything else? And he said, yeah, I'd, I'd probably tell him, for the most of the part, I've tried to do good stuff, but I've really screwed up my life a lot of the time as well. Um, and I'd probably say to him, I'm pretty sorry about that, that I wish it had turned out better. And the man said, well, that's a good, the chaplain said, well, that's a good start. Like, just sit here and keep talking to the chair. Uh, keep talking to Jesus and maybe sometimes listen as well. And, and that's a good way to, to start this journey of faith. And, and then he leaves. And the next day he goes to talk to his new friend and the nurse, uh, the bed's empty. And the nurse says to him, well, um, where, he says to the nurse, where did so-and-so go? And he said, well, yeah, he passed away last night. Um, and the chaplain thinks, oh, well, that's sad. I'd love to have talked to him more. And the nurse says, but you've got to know, like, after you left, he was really happy. He kept going on about this chair. We didn't really understand what he was talking about, but that's, that's all he talked about, the chair, the chair, the chair. And we were like, okay, maybe this is the end, but it seemed like he was in a positive place. And the chaplain goes to leave, and, he, and the nurse stops him and says, I shouldn't tell you this because it's against hospital protocol. But when we found him, his legs were on the bed, and his body was off it. And somehow he dragged the chair over to the side of the bed, and we found him dead with his arms thrown around the chair like he was hugging it. Somewhere that's invite. That, that's what it is. That's the central part of the story. As we come to this table, there is an invite that's open to anyone who happens to be broken uh, because someone became broken for us. So as we have every week during Lent, O sleeper, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Some questions. Where do you experience the collision of God's will with your will? Where do you experience that you say something different about you than he says about you? Where, do you, where are you experiencing brokenness? Will you respond to God's invitation that is constant, constantly to new things and broken things that are restored?
God, as we prepare to come to this table at the end of our service, this is a table that's 2,000 years old. Some people call it Eucharist. Mass, the Lord's Supper. It's open to anyone. Anyone who can open, uh, can own to their own brokenness, own to their own failure, and to anyone who looks to Jesus as the answer for all things. It's open to the broken. It's a recognition that someone became broken for you. So as Aaron just plays some music over us, I'm gonna invite you to come whenever you're ready. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.